everyone, and welcome to episode number four of The End of Sport. Today, we have the very great pleasure of speaking to, uh, I would say, I guess, scholar of the politics of sport, Jules Boykoff. Um, before I, we get to a brief introduction of Jules and the show itself, I just want to, uh, again, thank everybody for listening along with us. Uh, I would also like to plug the show we had earlier this week with uh, Regent at the University of Minnesota, Michael T. Shu, who really gave us um, an incredible kind of lesson in the inner workings of NCAA sport from the standpoint of an administrator and had some things to say that perhaps you would not expect from someone in such a position of power. So I strongly <laughs> encourage, least. that's right. I strongly encourage you to check out that show if you haven't. I think it'll be well worth your while. Uh, I also encourage everyone to follow us at End of Sport Pod on Twitter. Uh, we also try our best on Instagram, but we are much better on Twitter. Um, yeah, just be honest about that. Uh, <laughs> and please feel free to email us at theendofsport at gmail.com. We'd also love it if you uh, subscribe to the show on whatever uh venue you tend to listen to your podcasts and um give us a rating on itunes that's what people claim is a good thing for uh your show getting you know downloads and views and whatnot uh please do all those good things we would appreciate that very much um but the reason why we want to have jules boykoff on today aside from the fact that he is uh, really a brilliant scholar of sports studies in general is he also has a brand spanking new book out this very month, called Olympians Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond, which we hope everyone will check out. And because Derek has a bit of a personal connection to Jules's work. Yeah, maybe not a personal connection, but more of like a, a, a story. Um, and I've told this story before, but basically, I very early on in my career, I, I decided to like not study anything that I really loved. I really like cared for deeply. So I told myself, I'm never going to do a, a, like a sociological study of dogs or of sport. Those things will, will never happen. And then I read Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics from, from Jules. Um, and I realized that like, I can't really ignore sport in my work. Um, and that I, I need to, to focus more on sport in my own uh, analysis of the social world. So really it was, it was reading that in back in, I think 2016, maybe it was um, uh, a little bit later in 2017. Um, but reading that book that really like drove me towards accepting that I'm actually a sociologist of sport. Jules Boykoff is Professor and Department Chair of Politics and Government at Pacific University. He is the author of four books on the Olympics, including Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics with Verso, Activism in the Olympics, Descent at the Games in Vancouver and London, Rutgers University Press, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games with Routledge, and ju the just published, and we're really excited about this, Olympians inside the fight against capitalist megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and beyond, with my favorite press, Fernwood Publishing. He has published countless pieces of public scholarship, including recent op-eds in the New York Times and on NBC, 
and I really can't understate the relevance of this. He is also a former college soccer player at the University of Wisconsin and the University of Portland and former professional indoor soccer player as well. Jules, welcome to the show. So great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. It's such a pleasure for us to have you on. The first thing I want to ask you is I like to ask all of our guests, how are you coping with this pandemic in Portland? You know, we're hanging in there and um, I'm very grateful that I have a family I love, cats that I love, chickens that I love and have a little space to move around. I don't take it for granted. I can still go for a morning run. And so, yeah, I'm feeling pretty fortunate amidst the mayhem, but this is definitely a change of pace. How are you guys doing? Well, well, uh, doing the same thing, just trying to stay away from other people, but also somewhat connected. Yeah, exactly. Like you, I'm lucky to have a little bit more space here in Durham uh, and amazing weather. This has been the loveliest spring we've had since we've lived here. So uh, we're going down to the creek a little bit with my daughter uh, and just trying to, you know, get outside as much as possible. But uh, yeah, life has changed. So, okay, let's, let's get into it because there's so much to talk to you about when it comes to the themes that we care about on this show. Um, and we're going to dig in deep into the Olympics um, because there's so much to talk about there. But before we do, I actually want to start with an editorial you co-authored in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. You and your collaborators wrote, and I quote, taking this physically isolating moment to reflect on athletes as whole human beings, situated in communities that they care about, enables us to adopt more of an athlete-centered approach to athlete health protection when we return to sporting mega events in the future. My question coming out of this is, to what extent do you think athletes have been treated as, quote, whole human beings during this pandemic? And what do you think it might mean? And I mean the pandemic itself and the sort of circumstances we've seen, the way in which athletes have been uh, treated. What do you think all that will mean for athletes' rights movements moving forward, hopefully, out of this pandemic? Yeah, important questions for sure. I would say, for starters, the coronavirus pandemic has thrown a spotlight on the fact that despite the high-minded rhetoric from sports administrators, sports leagues, athletes are rarely treated as whole human beings. I should probably also shout out my co-authors on the project, uh, Sherry Becker, Brian Clift, and uh, Robert Mann, who generously brought me in as co-author, they really deserve the credit for all the behind-the-scenes legwork they did. But you know, more generally, we were trying to think through how the coronavirus pandemic and its squelching of sporting activity creates some mental space to think about big-picture stuff, how we might like to change things in order to make mega sporting events better for athletes. And let's be clear, a lot needs to be changed Take the questionable nature of the International Olympic Committee's slogan, Athletes First, which they've been really bandying about even amidst the discussions around postponement of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. But the way the Tokyo 2020 Olympics has played out in the postponement has shown us that this athlete first idea is essentially flimsy propaganda. And let me give some some bolster to that. Um, you know, as the postponement discussion unfolded, the International Olympic Committee's president, Thomas Bach, told athletes to just keep on training. Even as training centers were being shut here in the United States, the Olympic training centers in both Lake Placid and Colorado Springs were closed. So numerous athletes were talking openly about how this was not only magical thinking on the part of Mr. Bach, but that it caused them enormous mental stress. You just need to look at boxing because the International Olympic Committee was overseeing the boxing qualifying events. This only after the International Boxing Federation was ravaged by corruption. So the IOC was forced to take over and they held 
an event for boxing to qualify for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics three days after the World Health Organization had declared coronavirus a global pandemic, three days after the IOC was still holding events. And at those qualifying events, numerous people who attended who were in that boxing tournament contracted COVID-19 while we were there. So if athletes were truly first, this never would have happened. And one other thing, I mean, if the IOC really, and I mean the, the International Olympic Committee, really had an athlete first policy, the first thing it would have done is set up some sort of special fund for mental health support for athletes, because this is really taxing on the mental health of athletes, not knowing whether the games were going to be postponed, and then once they were, not when they were going to be postponed too. This is really tough. I mean, I give credit to Michael Phelps, the great U.S. swimmer, who was very critical about the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee's approach to this. But his critique which was they were way too slow to act to provide mental health support, certainly extends to the IOC as well, which has done virtually nothing to my knowledge. And so I guess it's just that there's a lot to fix, especially I'll focus a lot on the Olympics today because I've been thinking a lot about that. But Olympic spectacle all too often trumps athlete safety. This is very common in, in the history of the Olympic Games. And the entire episode of postponement has made it abundantly clear that we need to create and codify as much as possible some sort of rigorous system of checks and balances that ensures greater part of accountability on the part of mega event organizers, while at the same time bringing the athlete's voice louder into the discussion. And last point on this is that athletes have shown they're definitely up for the challenge. I mean, the group Global Athlete has been outspoken on the issue of athlete exploitation. They're calling for collective bargaining now um, for Olympic athletes. And you know, let's not forget that when the IOC was dragging its feet about whether to postpone the Tokyo Olympics, it was athletes who stepped up and filled that leadership vacuum, essentially demanding that science be taken seriously and that the games be postponed. And then you saw sports administrators, National Olympic Committee bodies that were like, yeah, we're not going to go, Canada being a prime one. I mean, they basically said, we're going to have a de facto boycott if you press ahead with the Olympics this summer. And that ended up being sort of the, the key factor that pushed a, ahead, not IOC leadership, but athlete leadership. So they've shown that they're up to the chant, to, to the challenge. And so that's why I feel confident in putting more power in the hands of athletes, especially critically thinking ones. You wrote elsewhere for NBC, um, and I'm quoting here again, um, the IOC long made up of a privileged sliver of the global 1% is run like a cabal and mi mired in the muck of corruption. Wall-to-wall -wall media coverage contemplating the fate of this summer's Olympics has deflected attention from the jaw-dropping drop, bribery allegations that greased a path for Tokyo landing the games in the first place, not to mention the rot at heart of the committee itself. So I, I think this sort of stems from what you're already talking about, but I, I want to ask you the question with possibly a million answers. Generally, what's wrong with the Olympics? Hmm. Um, and, and perhaps to make it a bit more bite-sized, maybe you could walk our listeners through um, or, or talk a little bit about who the IOC is and how the political economy of the Olympics works. Basically, where, where does the money flow in that whole regime? Yeah, well, <clears throat> first of all, thank you for for reading the work so carefully. As you as you read it back to me, I was like, wow, damn, that was a pretty hardcore critique. Maybe I should just like address some <laughs> of the elements of, of that first uh, and then jump into the economics, which I'm happy to do. Um, 
But, you know, when it comes to the Olympics, as I was indicating there, the International Olympic Committee is definitely a huge part of the problem. And it's not just now, it's it's always. I mean, the history of the International Olympic Committee is one of extreme sexism and, and racism. The IOC was born out of the idea of a plucky aristocrat from France named Baron Pierre de Coubertin. He brought on a, a gaggle of dukes, princes, counts to start the International Olympic Committee back in the 1890s. And that has carried forward all the way to today. I mean, even the today, the IOC has an incredibly high royalty quotient. Four of the nine IOC presidents in the entire history of the organization have been counts, dukes, and whatnot. And even today, like around 10% of members in the International Olympic Committee are are princes and now princesses and sheikhs and so on. Uh, you know, women princesses weren't even allowed to join as members until 1981. So like the beginning of the Reagan era, for goodness sake. So um, and today they they comprise around a third only of the IOC members, which I guess you could say is a little better than the U.S. Congress, where less than a quarter of all members in the House and Senate are women. But Anyways, um, you know, I was pointing out in the quote you you read there that there's serious, incredible allegations of of uh, corruption, and and that extends to vote buying that have plagued both the Rio 2016 Olympics as well as the Tokyo 2020 Games, and this bribery uh, and their allegations of bribery are being pursued by French prosecutors who allege that there was this bribery scheme revolving around Papa Masata Diak, the son of Lamine Diak, a former IOC member who is currently detained in house arrest in, in France. And there's there's really strong evidence, otherwise the French prosecutors wouldn't have pushed ahead, that people in Brazil, such as Carlos Nuzman, who was the former head of the Olympics in Brazil, was engaging in bribery, funneling money to the Diox through a Brazilian businessman only a few days before Rio was given the 2016 Olympics. And when investigators raided Carlos Newsman's apartment in a really posh section of Rio, I used to live in Rio and I would go down to there because they had really nice like juice shops and coffee shops. Um, when they raided his apartment, they found a Russian passport, piles of cash and multiple currencies. Um, there was a, yeah, this Russian passport, they, they figured the Brazilian federal public ministry thinks it was actually uh, a gift from Russian leader Vladimir Putin for helping to bring the Winter Olympics to Sochi. But, and then they raided his, his uh, little private vault in Geneva and found 16 pure gold bars in Newsman's little private vault. So I guess <clears throat> I say all that to say this, you know, these are not your average people. They're, they're floating in dough and I guess uh, Russian passports and, and gold bars as well. And it's not just Rio. I mean, it's Tokyo as well. And information has just come out recently that there was a similar kind of bribery scheme, a slush fund set up for an individual to basically bribe members through Lamine Diak, who could channel votes to the Tokyo bid. And these are ongoing. And of course, the Tokyo bid honchos deny it entirely. But it's very common with the Olympics to have this kind of high level corruption. I mean, as your listeners will know, uh, this isn't the first time the IOC has uh, been plagued with corruption, like Salt Lake City, for example, here where I'm coming to you from the United States, where bidders doled out nearly like $3 million in bribes and other inducements like NBA ticket, basketball, you know, basketball game tickets. Uh, they even gave a knee replacement to an IOC member's mother-in-law, uh, the, the Salt Lake City bid did. Before them, <clears throat> same thing, Nagano, 1998 Olympics in Japan. They actually incinerated all their bid documents and, and forms and everything. So we don't even know how deep the corruption went there. Same for Sydney, the 2000 Olympics, uh, where a guy who's now running the Tokyo Olympics by the name of John Coates, 
funneled some $70,000 to two key IOC members. And guess what? Sydney beat Beijing by two votes, 45 to 43. So my point is, in, in that quote that you read, is that there's a long history of, of corruption, and a great deal of it is, is not at all controversial. It's, it's quite out there. And the reason why there's so much corruption goes to the second part of your question is that there's just a ton of money sloshing through the system. And so it's worth our time to slow down and figure out like, where is the money coming from? And like, what's this business model like? So, you know, to answer your question very directly, the IOC is privately funded. So more than 90% of the International Olympic Committee's money comes from either broadcasting rights, or the corporate sponsorships in their marketing programs. So more specifically, like 73% of their money comes from broadcasting rights and another 18% from those corporate sponsors. So you can tell who's buttering their bread and they have to always think about those organizations when they're making their plans, for example, for like things like postponement. And there's a fascinating study that just came out of Ryerson University's School of Management in partnership with that global athlete group that I was mentioning previously that found that compared to professional sports leagues like the NBA, the NFL, NHL, uh, Major League Baseball, uh, the English Premier League of soccer, uh, groups you've talked about on your show already, Olympic athletes get a much smaller slice of the money pie. More specifically, they found that Olympic athletes only get about 4.1% of the IOC's revenue compared to these professional sports leagues where athletes receive between 40 and 60% of revenue. So 4.1% in the Olympics to 40 to 60 in these other leagues. So, you know, to your, your point, when you have a lot of money sloshing through the Olympic system and there's very little meaningful oversight, corruption should not be some sort of massively surprising outcome. I, I, ha- I have to ask here, how did NBC publish this? It seems that NBC is very uh, connected to the um, to the Olympic dream and 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 the Olympics in general. I, I I'm I'm finding it curious that they even like publish this. Yeah, it's even more curious the fact that the editor actually came to me and asked me to write it. Um, one thing I've I've learned over the years is that you'll have individuals nestled within these corporate behemoths that are absolutely willing to think critically about the Olympic Games, even though it's a hugely important property for NBC. So I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon, where the local affiliate has one show that has me on. It's like a half hour talk show. Every time there's an Olympics, this one journalist, Laurel Porter, she's wonderful, very prepared. And she knows what I the way I talk about the Olympics. She has me on. And we talk about, you know, the, the hard stuff around the Olympics for 30 minutes, you know, every time there's a game. So th- with the, this NBC article that you're referencing, I had written previously on the World Cup for them and a little bit about corporate sponsorships with the IOC. And one of the editors I was working with, she remembered I had a little thing that I said about the IOC. And then she was reading all this stuff about what was happening with Japan. And she came back to me and said, hey, would you be interested in pursuing this kernel that we cut from a previous essay. I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. So, <laughs> uh, and, you know, worked with her. It was great. I'll tell you one other thing, maybe this is too much information, but, you know, they also ran it by their lawyers at NBC before they published it. And, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily happen, at least to my knowledge, with the, a lot of the stuff that I write. But, hey, I'm fine with it. I mean, I want it to be crisp and clean when it gets out there, too. I don't want any extra trouble. I mean, I already gotten trouble from the IOC before, so <laughs> I, I don't necessarily want to do it by having 
Yeah. I mean, but, you know, for me, it's really important to have all the facts in order. So I pride myself on that. And I was happy to have the lawyers take a look. Absolutely. And they cleared it and boom, there it was. So that's fascinating. I actually, I have to admit, I'm almost depressed, though, to hear that because it's like, what does that mean for our contributions, right? When we publish these pieces, you hope you're kind of intervening in some way in public discourse. And yet these corporate behemoths who are literally the primary site where the money is flowing, when we just, you just described the political economy, right? These, these um, broadcasting rights and everything else. This is, this is where the Olympics bread is buttered. And yet they're, they're willing to come to you because like they just want some content about the Olympic Games, perhaps. Um, this is not because like, I love what you've written here, right? Like I, I would have loved to have my name on that piece. And I would have felt if I had my name on that piece, like I had made a contribution. And yet like the fact that NBC is coming to you, that bums me out just a little bit. I see what you're saying. I mean, on the other hand, I feel like even with these seemingly monolithic, huge corporations, there are people that are thinking against the grain within them. And you might think they could be footholds for critical thinking on a range of issues, including like unionization and all manner of of issues. So I hear what you're saying. I, I just think that there's a lot of really good, smart people out there, even working for, you know, very powerful behemoths like NBC, and, and we can work with them to our advantage to spread critical thinking around these issues that we care about. Yeah, well, I, I like your, I like that gloss. That's a, that's a better, <laughs> that's a better frame than mine. So I'm going to run with that. Um, but I also want to pick up what on, on, listen, the corruption stuff you're describing, that's, that's sexy stuff. Like that is, I can't understand how that's not a Netflix show, to be honest, or something <laughs> like that, right? Like, I mean, the, the drama there. But I can only imagine for you that if I were to say to you, what is the most fundamental problem? Like if you had to name one most fundamental problem with the Olympics from, let's say, an ethical standpoint, I can't imagine that ultimately the corruption piece would be your biggest concern. Is mm -hmm. that fair to say? No, it is fair to say. I mean, I think that the most fundamental problem with the Olympics is a total dearth of democracy at its core. The International Olympic Committee has long been run like a fiefdom. Today, under the current president, Tomas Bach, this is perhaps more of an issue than ever. He runs the International Olympic Committee with an iron fist. Dissenting opinions are not at all welcome. And so in some ways, I guess you could say that all the other problems, and there are many of them, flow from this dearth of democracy. And if I had to sort of categorize the, the types of problems that come out of a lack of democracy, which, by the way, the International Olympic Committee has prided itself on when I went when I went through the documents of previous President Avery Brundage, the Chicago business tycoon who ran the IOC from 1952 to 1972, in his private notes, he was very open about not wanting to have the IOC be a democratic body. But anyways, in terms of the problems that come out of this lack of democracy, I would say they boil down to really six of them. That's how I kind of organize them in my head. Um, one of them is overspending. So we have like Etch-a-Sketch economics, what, what I call Etch-a-Sketch economics. They say during the bid phase, it's going to be so many billions of dollars. And then when the delivery of the Olympics comes, it's many billions more. The second one is white elephant stadiums. They build all these specialized Olympic stadiums that really have no use after the Olympic Games. A third problem that flows out of this lack of democracy is displacement and gentrification of poor and marginalized folks, working class folks in the city. The fourth one is militarization of the public sphere, which happens every single time. Police groups basically use the Olympics like their own private ATM machine, getting all the weapons and money that they wouldn't be able to get during normal political times. 
And then, you know, the fifth one I, I like to point to is greenwashing. The IOC talks a big green game, but their follow through is really lacking. And that, I guess, links to the last thing that I see coming out, the last critique that I have of the Olympics, which is that they have all these false promises. Sometimes they are about the green promises, like we're going to fix up Guanabara Bay and Rio de Janeiro, which everybody wanted to do and have the water much more clean there. And instead they didn't. And by the time the Rio Olympics rolled around, if you drank three teaspoons of the water, you had a 99% chance of contracting a, a virus. So, you know, there's false promises left and right, unfortunately, when it comes to the Olympics. And a lot of people are wising up to them. But I guess your question is about the most fundamental problem. And I would say that's a lack of democracy and accountability. Picking up on, on that, on one of your po points there in terms of the militarization of, of the public sphere, I, I so I'm a, a criminologist slash sociologist. I focus a lot on securitization and surveillance and um, issues um, surrounding that. And I'm, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on um, how after Olympics are over, some of these um, militarization or securitization tactics actually seem to linger in places. Um, so I, I immediately thought of um, in Canada, for instance, in 2010, the Olympics were in Vancouver, and there was this like integrated security unit that um, brought so many um, different militarization um, characteristics into Vancouver and actually didn't go away after the Olympics. So I'm really curious to to get your opinion on how damaging um militarization of particular places can be after olympics have left yeah derek that's a really key point that a lot of folks overlook and the sort of state of exception surveillance technologies that are brought in for the olympic games then become parts of everyday policing regimes afterwards Take Vancouver, which you were mentioning, in addition to that sort of um, bringing together that specialized unit to bring together all these different uh, levels of law enforcement in Canada, they also did like kind of basic things like just buy like a thousand more surveillance cameras for around this area. Well, after the Olympics, they didn't like box them up and return them to the center. They, they don't go away, right? Exactly. And they just become part of everyday policing in the wake of the games. And you just see this in Olympics after Olympics. And, you know, coming up to Tokyo here, they are actually installing facial recognition systems at every single Olympic venue to check um, athletes and, and other folks that are entering the arenas for the competitions. And so a lot of people I've been speaking with in Japan are very concerned because of the history of this dynamic that you're pointing out, that, that this will be sort of a way of greasing the path forward for facial recognition technologies to be normalized in Tokyo and Japan more generally, which a lot of people are obviously concerned about. We're having serious and important discussions in the United States and Canada right now and other places around the world about whether we want to have these technologies because there's serious downsides to them um, that are racial downsides, like they're, they're inaccurate and you just pull a bunch of um, people that are you know, African-American in the United States or Native American in the United States or Asian-American uh, Latinx into the system. Um, and so, yeah, there's big concerns around that. And I'm glad you raised it because it, it often kind of just gets forgotten because, you know, for a lot of us, and this is something that I'm really cognizant of, we go and we really focus on one Olympic Games. And in a, in a way, we just kind of move on to the next one and don't get back to as much as we'd like to the previous places where we were doing research on the ground 
And, you know, that personally pains me to not be able to go back to places I've worked before, whether it's Vancouver, London, or, um, or Rio de Janeiro. But if people do that, you'll be able to really pinpoint some of the dynamics that you're talking about. This actually is, per- this is a perfect segue into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is about um, Tokyo sp- more specifically now. And you've been, you've been telling, talking to us in specifics about um, the surveillance piece there. Uh, but you're saying like you, you won't have the chance to go back, but that also uh, implies the fact that you have been there in the first place, right? And so this is what you're saying. You've been in Tokyo. You were, you were in Japan. I know you were in Japan last year. You wrote about for the nation um, visiting Fukushima, for instance. I would love to hear you talk about that experience, um, the experience you had with radiation, which you which you wrote about really vividly. I, I was stupefied when I read that piece. Um, so I just love to hear you kind of talk through perhaps um, some of the very particular problems aside from the foot dragging piece in terms of actually postponing the game. And we were very clear on that. Like that was a kind of horrific uh, health hazard in its own right. But I mean, prior to that moment, right? You, I think we're already very critical of how Japan was approaching these games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first, I would just say that the Tokyo 2020 postponement is sort of like when a radiologist injects contrast dye into a body so that you can more clearly see like the organs, tissues, bones during an imaging exam. Similarly, like the way the International Olympic Committee mishandled the postponement situation helps us see in really sharp contrast the the bigger imperfections that plague the Olympic body. And when I was in Tokyo last summer, I got to see many of those face-to-face. I was traveling with uh, the great sports journalist and political journalist Dave Zirin of The Nation. And like you said, we were writing pieces up for The Nation. We, we wrote a, a real slam bang. I liked the essay for the LA Times and they gave it a hell of a title about like the nightmare awakening or awaiting Los Angeles. But, you know, we traveled all around the city. We talked to people who were displaced by both the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo and then displaced again by the 2020 Olympics for, for venue building. I mean, same people displaced twice. And and to tell you what, they, they would not give us their real names to print it at the nation because they were afraid of reprisal from the government or from people in Tokyo. And so a real fear ripples through folks who are, are marginalized and feeling the brunt of these big events. So um so I guess with with Tokyo, you mentioned the the whole situation around Fukushima and we traveled down to Fukushima from Tokyo with a terrific geographer, really smart thinker, Christopher Gaffney from New York University, a whole bunch of activists who were in town for the first ever transnational anti-Olympic summit, Um, people from Los Angeles, all around South Korea. We had representatives from Rio, London, and um, elsewhere. And so we went on a big bus down to Fukushima and we picked up this one scientist along the way. And he had one of these dosimeters that measures the radiation that's in the air. And when we picked this guy up, his dosimeter read like 0.04 or something like that. And just just like picking up everyday radiation in the air. The Japanese government has set a standard of about 0.20. So if you're below 0.20, you're in theory safe from the radiation that's in the air. 
So we're going along and I'm sitting right next to him on the bus and I'm watching his dosimeter as we get closer to Fukushima. And by the time that we were at the road that led to one of the nuclear reactors that melt, melted down in March 2011, the dosimeter had jumped up way above the safety level. In fact, as I said, it was 0.20 was the safety level. It was up to 3.77. So 18 times, you know, the, the regular safety rate. And we were there for the day and we were still plenty nervous about it. And you think about what would it be like if you actually lived in these areas? And I'll tell you what, they call the Tokyo Olympics the recovery games. And we're supposed to be inspired about the recovery happening around Fukushima. But when we were there, we just kept looking at each other as we drove around saying, wow, this, this is a ghost town. I mean, we would see huge piles of these black plastic bags, sort of like big black hefty bags full of soil at different stages of irradiation, just piled up like right next to the road. You know, there were some of these bags that were ripped open and the, and the radiated soils like spilling out onto the ground. And, you know, we saw some of these bags that had trees growing out of them. And on one hand, you're like, oh, wow, hope, you know, coming out of the irradiated soil. On the other hand, you're like, holy crap, you know, like, what if a wind comes along and like blows the pollen off these, you know, little shrubs or whatever, and they go flying around and spread the irradiation everywhere. So when you hear that this is a big recovery moment for Fukushima, uh, that is extremely, extremely misleading. And the people we interviewed when we were in Tokyo and also in Fukushima were like, please go tell people that we actually haven't gotten the equipment that we need here because they've been spending it on the Olympics. We haven't had the cranes come down here because they've been using them to construct venues and whatnot for the Olympics. And so Tokyo was really eye-opening in that way and uh, really, really reshaped the way I was seeing this particular Olympics as it's coming forward to us. While, while you were talking, I was like really thinking about how Japan um, responded um, to this particular um, catastrophe and how they are currently responding um, to the coronavirus. I sort of, I couldn't separate that. Um, in my mind. And like Japan is one of those countries that you think would be on the, on the like progressive side of, or uh, on the side that would be able to like get through this pandemic relatively um, uh, unharmed, if you will. Um, but it seems to be they're, they're taking an almost completely hands-off approach. They have barely tested in that country that I think their testing is like, at like a thousand per one million, and and in the U.S. they're up fifteen or sixteen thousand. So it seems to be that they're not taking a proactive approach to testing the coronavirus. So do you think that has something to do with like just financial? Um, I, I, this is probably speculation. Me asking you for speculation, but um, do you think that has something to do with like the the amount of money spent on preparing for the Olympics that now? are delayed? Well, for starters, you're onto something around the rhetoric being really similar around the coronavirus today and the right around the time of the vote for the Tokyo Olympics back in 2013. At the time of that vote, when the International Olympic Committee was trying to decide uh, whether to have the Olympics go to Istanbul, Madrid, or Tokyo, 
Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan then and now, shows up and says, oh, don't worry, I want to quell your concerns around Fukushima, which had only happened two years earlier. He said, quote, everything is under control. And everywhere I went around Fukushima and everybody I talked to, they referenced these comments. They bit so deep in the psyche of the people in the area because things were absolutely not under control and they still weren't under control today. And so yet Shinzo Abe showed a real predilection to just say what he needed to say to get what he really wanted to get, which in that case was the Olympics. Now, recently, there has been a lot of speculation out of Tokyo that the Olympics were driving the discussion around coronavirus. And if you look at the numbers of cases in Japan more generally, they went straight up right after the decision happened to postpone the Olympics, which has led some people to say that they were suppressing the testing and suppressing the numbers. But once it became clear it was postponed anyways, they went ahead with it. Now, I think there's a discussion to be had around that and someone really needs to do a deep dive into the numbers because there's a, a, a wide range of factors in play there. But the fact that, you know, these aren't like conspiracy theorists saying this, these are scholars from different universities in Tokyo and beyond that are suggesting this, I think that that suggests that something is perhaps there and that you're probably very much onto something. I couldn't help but think that there, like there's so, it's such similar discourse coming out of those two sort of responses um, that that I, like as someone who studies discourse, I almost can't ignore. Um, but I kind of want to pivot a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you, you've mentioned a lot about all of these fiscal issues with the Olympics, particularly after the fact, and this idea that Olympics like, um, or this like very powerful idea that the Olympics bring something to your community and bring something, bring like economic prosperity. But we actually know from recent over the past, um, 30, 40 years that like the Olympics actually create some fiscal insecurity and and uncertainty so my question to you is why do people still in in light of kind of knowing this about um the decay of all of these white elephant stadiums as you put it and like gentrification all these issues why do people still desire the games well for starters yes let's just put some numbers on the table that demonstrate this sort of etch-a-sketch economics idea where the Olympic bidders say the Olympics are only going to cost so much and they ended up costing a lot more. Take London, which some people point to as like a successful Olympics in a, in a Western democratic country. When they were first bidding for those games, they were supposed to be $3.8 billion, 3.8. By the time the Olympics rolled around, they were like six times that. A Sky Sports investigation found that they were 10 times that if you counted some of the spending on infrastructure. And London wasn't alone. I mean, the very next Olympics was in Sochi, Russia. It was supposed to be around 10 to 12 billion in spending on the Olympics, and it ended up being 51 billion, more than all previous Winter Olympics combined. Rio, same thing. It's supposed to be around 10 to 12 billion, and people say it was more like 20 billion. Pyeongchang, uh, the 2018 Winter Olympics, it was supposed to be 6.5 billion, and it essentially doubled. In Tokyo, you're seeing the original price tag was $7.3 billion. And an audit done recently by the Japanese government found that it was four times that, more closer to $28 billion. Wow. And that's not even including the additional right. costs that we're yeah. going to get from postponement, which initial estimates, yeah, are saying it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of two to six billion extra. So you can probably actually maybe double that. I don't know. We'll see. 
But um, so there's a real strong track record. There's an activist in Vancouver named Am Joe Hall who summarized it for me. He said, the Olympics are a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. And I think that takes us to the, the question you're asking is like, why are people still doing this? Well, the people of a city aren't. It's the elites of the city that are, and they're betting with public money. So the Olympics are essentially this type of capitalism where you're using public money to gain private benefit. The people that benefit from the Olympics, and people certainly do, tend to be individual politicians like Shinzo Abe, who's plunged a lot of political capital into it, uh, or corporations that are linked to the Olympics for sure. The corporate sponsors do really well. They don't pay any taxes on goods and services coming into the country, and they just you know leak all their profits back out to their headquarters. And then, of course, like developers who are local to the Olympics, it's a, just a bonanza for them. They can build all sorts of stuff. And if they can like manage to meet it really close to the deadline of the Olympics, they can jack up the prices at the end and charge more to make sure that they get done for the games. And so there is money moving through the system, but it just tends to go upward. Basically, the Olympics are an exercise in trickle-up economics. And that's why you see people still bidding on the games. You don't see like the people's group for bringing the Olympics to Los Angeles. It just doesn't exist. You, you see the yeah. collection of elite people from politicians like Eric Garcetti to uh, well-known, well-connected people like Casey Wasserman that are bringing the Olympics. What I want to talk to you about next is your new book, uh, release April 2020 from Fernwood Press. Uh, and I, I want to shout out Fernwood again, uh, because Fernwood was my own publisher. Uh, and they are, for all those who are maybe unfamiliar, they're fairly small in the grand scheme, especially of like academic publishing, but they're a Canadian critical press who really releases amazing political critical work. Uh, so anyone who's sort of thinking about um, trying to publish a, a book project of their own, I would strongly suggest you, you think about Fernwood. Um, so, you know, just want to give them that shout out there. But now what I want to talk about, uh, Jules, is your book, No Olympians, Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond. I would love for you to give us just a bit of a preview about what your argument is in that book. And we've, we've only sort of, you were just scratching the surface of Los Angeles, um, but I'd love to hear more about Los Angeles particularly. Yeah, thanks so much. And I share your admiration, Nathan, for Fernwood. They've just been an absolute joy to work with. So I'm just really grateful that they've embarked on this this journey with me. Um, the book, No Olympians, charts the decline of host city interest in the Olympics and the rise of two political forces. One is anti-Olympics activism around the globe, and the other is the rise of the Democratic Socialists of America in the United States. And to get at this, I focus on the group No Olympics LA, which is a group of activists in Los Angeles that emerged out of the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And No Olympics LA is a tremendously talented and creative group of activists. Many of their members work in Hollywood. Others are journalists. Others are on-the-ground organizers for various groups like LA Tenants Union, Black Lives Matter, um, K-Town for All, and numerous groups all around the city. And the bigger story I try to capture in the book is how No Olympics LA is converting their criticism of capitalism and, and how it plays out in the context of hosting the Olympics into boots-to-pavement action that 
is using the games as a sort of trampoline for leftist activism that helps everyday working people in the city. And so I've been following anti-Olympics activism intensely for more than a decade. And, and I think what's happening in LA builds on the history of, of anti-Olympics activism in ways that are both savvy and special. Um, the fact that No Olympics LA and DSA is avowedly socialist matters, I think, in this fight because they really put forward internationalism. And No Olympics LA was a huge part of that transnational anti-Olympic summit that took place in Tokyo that I mentioned earlier. I mean, they were some of the prime movers. No Olympics LA was in that. And they sent the biggest contingent over to Tokyo. Um, nearly two dozen people went from Los Angeles to the transnational summit. So they've adopted sort of an inside-outside strategy, like doing direct action actions outside of Mayor Garcetti's house on one hand, or turning up for city council meetings and giving testimony and engaging in some electoral politics as well. And they've also appro approached their fight with a sort of Olympics, non-Olympic strategy, meaning some of the stuff they do is very focused on Olympics machinations in the city. And other stuff is totally unrelated, at least not in a direct way to the Olympics. So they're doing campaigns uh, around gentrification and displacement in the city. They're linking it to the Olympics, but they're fighting struggles that are happening now well in advance of the Olympics. So basically what they're doing is they're sort of putting forth a, a class struggle politics to, to fight for a right to the city. And I was just really intrigued by them. You know, I mentioned before, I, so I went up to Vancouver because it's just up the road from where I live in Portland during the Olymp Olympic moment, the extended Olympic moment there. I lived in London in during and before those Olympics. I lived in Rio de Janeiro before and during those Olympics. And so I've worked with and, and astride these different groups. And, and I just think what's happening in Los Angeles is really interesting. So would you call yourself an activist? And and if so, if, if you do, how would that sort of activism inform your scholarship? I guess I differentiate between scholar activism on one hand and public intellectual work on the other. So for me, public intellectuals make interventions that move into the public sphere, the mediascape, whereas scholar activists work directly with protest groups, which sometimes involves also going to the public sphere, but hitting the streets with protesters. So like public intellectuals would write opinion essays for newspapers, maybe appear on television or podcasts like this one, maybe offer quotes to journalists for the stories that they're writing, where, whereas a scholar activists, they embed themselves in mo movements for you know extended periods of time. They attend meetings, they do behind the scenes grunt work, they sometimes link arms with activists at marches, sometimes they inhale tear gas with protesters or give give speeches at activist events. And so I guess in short, at least in my mind, public intellectuals try to sort of impose order and coherence on political reality by commenting on it, whereas scholar activists actually play a small role in helping to create the, that swirl of political reality. So my own activism definitely informs my scholarship, but it certainly predates it as well. I was an activist on different issues long before I was a scholar. So for instance, here in Portland, I've engaged in activism around the issue of homelessness since the 1990s. I used to work for a, a organization that served homeless mm -hmm. youth in Portland. 
And um, even today, every Friday, I, I volunteer down at Street Roots, the local newspaper that were, uh, that helps uh, unhoused folks give them a leg up. They can sell the paper on the streets, although no one's yeah. selling the paper now. So it's especially tough time. So like last week, I was helping people sign up so they could maybe get their $1,200 stimulus payment. But anyways, this doesn't directly inform my scholarship when I'm working down at Street Roots when it comes to like my scholarship on the Olympics. But it does help me get grounded in a much stronger understanding of how displacement and gentrification affect actual people in poignant and painful ways. And so I guess you could say in, in general, my work on the Olympics is, is informed by my interest in trying to understand the games from the ground up, uh, from the point of view of everyday people in the Olympic host city, people who, let's be honest, like don't hold power in society. Those are the people I want to talk to. And, so that's what I've done with the way I've approached the Olympics. In fact, actually, my work has been critiqued for not taking the viewpoints of Olympic power brokers into consideration as much as I should, or you know, for not properly bowing down <laughs> to uh, what one recent review of No Olympians called the cultural and historical allure of of mega sports, or or that I you know here's another critique I get is that I. I'm too repetitious about condemning uh, capitalism, you know? And so, you know, those critiques are totally fair. Like, I actually don't disagree with them. Um, I don't I don't think I rep- I'm too repetitious about it, but I think it needs to be done. And, and I don't regret approaching my scholarship in the way that I have. And I do think it's linked to my history as, as an activist. And so, you know, if I've made any contribution as a scholar of the Olympics, I like to think that it's that I lifted the voices and perspectives of the relatively marginalized who typically get steamrolled by the Olympic machine and typically aren't asked to comment on the Olympics. And, you know, maybe also that I tried my best to make sure that when we discuss the Olympics, the word capitalism is never too far from the tip of the tongue. And if I somehow managed to help alongside others, of course, to achieve those goals, then I guess I can, I can live with the criticisms that get flung my way about being too critical of capitalism and so on. I don't think those critiques are fair at all. Uh, from my standpoint, I think they're <laughs> hilarious in fact, and really speak to deeply problematic character of the Academy in general, if that's where they're coming from largely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, a, that's another conversation perhaps, but, mm-hmm. um, no, you're doing the, you're doing the work that needs to be done. Uh, and these are the voices that we need to be hearing so much more about. I mean, if we're talking about popular culture, all we ever hear uh, are the sort of the power brokers and we hear the cultural impact of the games. And we- Everywhere else is like the the propping up of the capitalist system and sport. So that's everywhere. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and we haven't talked about nationalism, really. Right. But I mean, that's a huge part. Like I, I wrote a piece years ago about the Vancouver Games and the opening ceremonies and how they kind of dramatized a narrative of the Canadian nation. Right. And this instead of like it was supposedly a celebration of indigeneity in Canada. Mm-hmm, but really mm-hmm. what it ended up, uh, the narrative ended up really just being this kind of the celebration of how indigenous people ostensibly had like sort of handed off the reins of Canada to like white settlers. Um, mm-hmm. There was not there wasn't even a discussion of multiculturalism, which is amazing because that's the dominant Canadian discourse right around difference and diversity. Um, and ultimately, again, that's sort of tends to prop up the kind of white settler state. Um, so I think it's a very superficial notion of multiculturalism that disguises racial difference. But that was absent in that narrative. Uh, instead, what we just had is this kind of really utopian celebration of how, you know, whiteness prevailed. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's also part of the games and we hear plenty about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Uh, actually, the thing I want to ask you next, and this is maybe, I, I hope our listeners are as interested in this as I am. Uh, I want to pull back the curtain just a little bit on how you do what you do, um, because you are so prolific. You're everywhere. How do you pull it off? How are you such a, how can you be a, a scholar activist, a public intellectual, a teacher? Uh, how do you find time for all that? Oh, I don't know. I haven't really, really thought of that. I just kind of just doing my best here. But um, I, I think if, if anything, a lot of my parts of my life are very intertwined. And so, you know, I, I'm, this is just my life, you know, like m my life is around being involved in, in struggles on, on the ground. My, my life is having a, an indigenous daughter in this world. So I'm all, I'm with you on the whole, um, stuff around the sort of what, what some scholars have referred to as, as red washing of the Canadian Vancouver games, like making it seem like it was this big boom. Like this is my life, you know, my, my daughter's an enrolled member at the Warm Springs Reservation here in, in Oregon. And I, I, I go to Warm Springs. I'm not native. Let me be clear about that. I'm not a pretendian as uh, the great uh, scholar and activist and writer Jacqueline Keeler refers to the term pretendian, wh white folks who try to pass themselves. I'm definitely not that. Uh, but I've had the good fortune of being the one white guy, or shiapu is the word for it, and one of the three indigenous languages spoken on the reservation in a longhouse full of, you know, 500 Native American people. And like, I know what it's like to, to sort of be in that scene. And I know what the conversations are like, and I know what the material reality is like. And I know what it's like from members of, of my family who I visit all the time on the res and who come and visit us here in Portland. And so I think maybe, if anything, it's just because my life is very um, thickly brocaded with the things that I care a lot about, and it goes down to the family level. And and the truth is, too, I mean, I just have met so many amazing people out there who have been so incredibly generous. You know, I, I mentioned Dave Zyron. He and I have a really strong working relationship. And, you know, you could see some sports journalists being like, you know, stay off my turf, but he's never like that. He's always super welcoming. And we just have a system now, you know, he and I have probably written, I don't know, 40 articles together over the years, going back more than a decade. And, you know, it's, it's when you have friends like that with whom you can work well, you can get a lot more done. And when you have friends that are engaged in these different struggles with whom you can talk, you just are learning all the time. And so I'm just kind of lucky, basically. When you hear the, the, the rhetoric that politics and sport should not coexist, what do you think? <laughs> well, I just think they already do. And they, and they do to the benefit of those who are powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nathan mentioned nationalism. If, if the Olympics weren't political, then we wouldn't have the intense and intensified nationalism through the Olympics. You wouldn't have the athletes march in behind their flag. You'd have them maybe like, here come the pole vaulters, or, you know, here comes the people that are the figure skaters. Like you don't have to organize it like that. So they're already making political decisions. The corporate sponsors are political decisions. The low payment for athletes are political decisions. The overlooking athlete abuse, those are political decisions. So, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, I'm glad to say it's kind of become a joke at this point. And we have the sort of fourth wave of athlete activism. That's what Dr. Harry Edwards calls it, where you have folks like Megan Rapino and, you know, Colin Kaepernick and, and a lot of other people right now speaking out. That global athlete group I mentioned before is really pushing the envelope right now. And, they're just making it very clear that that's just a joke. And 
and, and that's exactly how I feel about it. This just a joke. And I, it's not just because I'm a political scientist trained as a political scientist who's taught to find politics in every last nook and crevice, but it's because that's the actual reality of sports and politics. Uh, sports today is that they are dripping with politics, whether we want to acknowledge them or not. Because it's Derek and I, and um, we seem to have a bit of an obsession, this means I kind of have to ask you about college sport here in the United States. Um, because you're talking about athletes' rights uh, and exploitation in the capitalist context. Um, and so I'm curious what your views might be on college sport, especially as a former non-revenue athlete, right? Um, do you view, because this is, this is the thing that I think is a really tricky question. I don't even feel like I need to ask you the question of whether you view, let's say, high revenue college sport like football or men's basketball as exploitative. Maybe, maybe you'll, maybe you'll uh, surprise me, but I, I'm doubtful that that's an area where you know, we would have any disagreement. But I actually think that's for a lot of people, the question of the sort of Olympic sports, non-revenue sports, low-revenue sports are a more complicated question, right, in terms of what's going on there. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about um, how you understand that context as a site of labor as opposed to just like opportunity as it's typically held up. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned in the lead in, I played college soccer in the United States and I transferred, like you mentioned, like right, right way, partway through my time. I, I spent um, two years playing for the University of Wisconsin. And then I played my last two years of eligibility at the University of Portland here in Oregon. And so I got to see two different systems, very different. And I think with the system I saw in Wisconsin, it's more like the system that people usually talk about. It's like the big, big money sports. And, and when I was at Wisconsin, I could see how the college system of sports is in some ways, you know, unethical to its core, not because of anything that was happening at Wisconsin, but just because the system was unethical to the core. Because on one hand, you have like college athletes working just ridiculous hours on their sport um, and for the, the payment of a scholarship. And meanwhile, you have assistant coaches making, but nowadays it's like $2.5 million for assistant coaches for some of them in the NCAA division one programs, $2.5 million in base pay. You know, it's not even including the incentives. So obviously that's an unethical system where workers aren't getting paid and producing immense amounts of, of wealth. And even back when the immense amounts of wealth weren't nearly as immense as they are today, it was clear that there was exploitation in the system. And it's made worse by administrative bloat, not just the coaching staff, but on the academic sides of universities and colleges as well. I see academic bloat all over, uh, administrative bloat rather, all over the place where we have an administrator for everything, VPs for everything. So money-making sports tend to feature more athletes of color who basically compromise, get their educations compromised in order to subsidize lesser known sports, uh, lesser money-making sports like soccer that I played. And I was, which are, happened to be predominantly white athletes in a lot of cases, you know, who's, who's playing lacrosse. I mean, I understand there's a really strong indigenous history and presence, you know, in the Iroquois nation, especially, but like largely uh, a white sport, increasingly less so, but like those sports are being subsidized by these major sports. I mean, there's a reason why, the historian Taylor Branch has argued that when it comes to college sports, there's what he called the unmistakable whiff of the plantation there, or, or why uh, William Roden, the, the great longtime columnist for the New York Times, talked about how this is like the perfect business model from the perspective of those running the business. Basically, your employees generate billions of dollars and basically only work for honor and glory and, and little more, really. 
And, you know, I feel a little self-conscious talking about all this because, Nathan, you've written so powerfully on how athletic labor should be viewed as a form of social produ- reproductive labor. So in, in some ways, I should like feel like I defer to you. But, you know, my own experience has sort of taught me some of these lessons that I also read now in critical scholarship like yours, and it chimes with what you're writing about. I'm curious to get your take, and I, I and I know that this is not your area of expertise, so I'm 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 kind of asking you a question that maybe maybe unfair, but when you when you or when we hear about news that like a a, a basketball coach at Wake Forest has been let go and is going to earn a fifteen million dollar buyout during a global pandemic where universities are asking faculty to take pay cuts, asking part-timers to give up their jobs, asking admin to be completely gutted. What do you think when you see that? Oh, it's just beyond infuriating. I have to say, I I listened to a a wonderful podcast called Burn It All Down uh, with five- Oh, so good. Yeah, badass feminist hosts. And this past week on their show, Brenda Elsie was talking about this. She's a professor of history at Hofstra University, and she was speaking with Amira Rose Davis, who's a professor uh, of history and, and women's studies. And she's got a whole bunch of appointments there at Penn State. And they were talking about about their feelings on it. And I was they, they captured it perfectly. It's just this rage, and it's just this incredible injustice that's happening in plain sight. And it really shows the priorities of a university. And maybe, just maybe, this moment of coronavirus mayhem will lay these dynamics bare for us to look at. And maybe some people at least have a little more time to really look at them. And so maybe we can sort of use this as a historical pivot away from that extreme injustice. But these are pretty enshrined dynamics that'll be difficult to shake loose. But I'm I'm ready to stand up next to the folks over at Burn It All Down and, you know, stand up with you and and definitely try to make it happen. Yeah, well, listen, I got one more question for me, and I don't know if Derek will have another, but um, I'm kind of curious after sort of hearing you systematically take down, I would say, you know, high performance sport uh, in general and the Olympics specifically, um, and I really can't imagine anyone doing it more incisively. How did your experiences, because we didn't really talk about this, but like you were also a, a professional player, right? A professional soccer player in the indoor league. Um, how did your, do you feel if you're kind of engaging in some um, self-reflection, let's say, do you feel like your experiences as an athlete have informed where you are today? Like to what extent do you feel that in terms of your scholarship, your activism, every part of kind of your identity today? Well, in some ways, I view them as pretty separate. Um, in part because when I was playing high-level soccer, I was so embarrassingly clueless about things. Like, And it gives me perspective on when I see athletes speaking out today, especially young athletes, and they're speaking out coherently on issues and, and making a whole lot of sense. I just have so much admiration for them because I was not there. I'll tell you what, when I was playing even the early days of my professional soccer career after I graduated college, like I just didn't have the political analysis down and thank God I wasn't (laughs) speaking out. I would hate to think what I might've said. Um, and and, you know, the thing I did also with those, those, you know, the college and, and professional soccer that I played was I also played for the U S Olympic soccer team. And I learned a lot that, that way. Um, one particular tournament, so we were playing in an international tournament in France 
and we were playing our first match was against brazil actually and really good turnout you know thousands of fans and, and etc and when we walked on the field um we got booed actually the united states got booed and you know everyone's cheering for brazil and i at the time i was like oh, okay you know they just like cafu the great cafu was playing for brazil let me just say that i got to actually line up and play right against him but um I thought they just liked Brazil, right? But I realized as the tournament proceeded that when we played, the next team we played was, uh, it was either Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia. We played both of them. And then we played the Soviet Union. I guess that's how long ago it was. We might've been the last team to play the Soviet Union. And everywhere we went, we got booed. So I was like, in my little 19-year-old brain at the time, I was like, okay, something is is going on here. Um, but I, I was super slow to clue into the fact that at that exact moment, the late 80s, early 90s, when I was running up and down the field for the U.S. Olympic soccer team, that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, was like really reformatting the way that they were making money and that they were doing it on the backs of athletes and corporate sponsors and so on and these broadcast rights for sure. I was just clueless about all that. I was just playing soccer and having a good time. And the college stuff, I got a front row look at a two-tier system, you know, University of Wisconsin versus University of Portland, I mentioned before, was just really different systems of, of seeing the world. And we didn't have a football team at the University of Portland, which was great for soccer. But as a as a professional athlete, I had a profoundly variegated experience. Like on one hand, I, I was playing for a team, I'm not going to out them, but it was horrible. Like these guys were of course, I was reading a, like a dorky, geeky book. I was reading Anna Karenina, and they thought it would be funny when we stopped at one of those crappy oases where everybody gets out, uses the bathroom, gets a snack. They thought it'd be funny if they ripped out the last 10 or 20 pages of my book. Um, so I was basically getting harassed for being like interested in things not soccer related <laughs> on one hand. Then I went and moved to Minnesota. I played for a team. I was on loan, actually, this team in Minnesota called the Minnesota Thunder. It was a precursor to the Major League Soccer and there was like all the best players on that team were part of a radical book group. We read together a, a biography of Che Guevara at one point. Uh, you know, it was awesome. So like I had a really wide experience, but playing professional soccer or soccer in general definitely gave me a, a stronger understanding of labor exploitation, the power of team owners. Um, but, you know, as I say, my, my athletic career is in many ways quite separate from my work today. One, one last thing, though. You know, when you're playing high-level sports, there's no place for doubt in what you're doing. You just have to, like, have confidence and just, like, don't doubt yourself ever and just keep pushing, pushing. Whereas it's sort of the opposite, in my experience, with academic writing, where doubt is really good, actually. Like, you know, doubt everything, you know, and you're going to get plenty of it externally, as I was sort of also alluding to before. But I think self-doubt can actually be really healthy as, as an academic, not to the point of being debilitating, but to, to question your assumptions and to question, you know, what are, am I actually doing? Like, is this worth my time as a human being, not as a scholar, but as a human being to be doing what I'm doing. So I would say that like the role of doubt is like night and day between my time as an athlete and my, my time as a scholar. I agree completely with that, like role of self doubt. It's actually productive in the line of work in, in academia. Um, I, I have one last question that is kind of a question that Nathan and I are always grappling with is like how to be like a sports fan or how to be like how to enjoy sport but also be like a, a strong critic of it so my question to you is like how do you negotiate 
the like wanting to like participating in sport but also enjoying sport but also critiquing it at the same time Mm -hmm. i just side with the athletes and i challenge the owners and that's kind of how i typically will do it whether it's the teams the soccer teams i follow here in portland the portland thorns awesome women's soccer team really successful and the portland timbers which has also done pretty well in major league soccer i support the players i support when they speak out about political matters or social matters and and challenge the owners at, at every turn and try to tweak the system so that it's more just for those those players that are fighting in their own ways inside so that's generally the way i i do it i think you can cheer for the Olympic athletes or professional sports stars and cheer against the people that own the franchises that employ them. And there's a great book I can't wait to read that's coming out um, by Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson that kind of gets at this idea. So maybe a future end of sport pod with with those two. I'd I'd certainly listen. I think so. I think that is in the cards. Excellent. I want to push you a little bit more though on this one, Jules, because I what I didn't necessarily hear there, and maybe because it's, it's not part of your experience now, do you get pleasure from watching the game still? Or is it like the, I, I use the expression pulling back the curtain, but like really seeing the inner workings of capitalism and sport and then the, the, the pervasive exploitation, does that actually make it too difficult for you to enjoy the games? Yeah, no, I appreciate you pushing back on that. And I think it's different with certain sports. And soccer, which is the sport that I clearly know the best, I can just totally absorb myself into a, a match and just appreciate the little things because I really understand the game at that level. And that allows me to sort of block out some of the less savory elements of it. And uh, let me just say, I mean, I have been in political fights with the ownership in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. And the owner of the Portland Thorns and Timbers is a guy named Merritt Paulson, who is the son of Henry Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary under President Bush, who rolled out that joke of a three-page thing when the financial collapse happened in 2008. So, like, I've kind of been doing both. You know, I've fought back against using public money for the stadium revamp to bring the Timbers to town and made myself extremely unpopular, even among my friends in sports. And I've always had to be really careful. Like, I've had friends that are coaches. A lot of my friends, you know, that I play soccer with, they're all like either a pundit now on TV, like Casey Keller or Brad Friedel or guys like that, or Kobe Jones, or they're, they're coaches in, in major league soccer or elsewhere. You know, I got my friends over at the Minnesota team, Minnesota United that I'm in contact with a lot, Amos McGee and, and Manny Lagos. So like I, I can root for them to put a good team on the field and they all the at least the last two are really cognizant politically but I've, i'm perfectly happy to speak out even against the the sports that i that i love down to my bones and there have been moments when i've sort of wondered if i could keep going i mean one here in portland was we were fighting against a regulation that said you couldn't bring political signage into the games which included the iron front anti-fascist symbol and we had a huge fight here in portland and it really made me rethink my relationship to the organization because they were so adamant in keeping this ridiculous rule on the books outlawing this anti-fascist symbol at the at the end of the day the supporters groups managed to push back enough and changed the way, way they talked about it. And they actually changed the rule now. So the iron front symbol will be allowed on banners and flags and stadiums. But uh, I definitely struggle with this and I'm ready to drop it all if it gets so bad uh, that I can't even enjoy the sports on the, on the field anymore. I'm perfectly ready to do that. My politics mean more to me at this point than my sports do. 
Well, uh, I don't think uh, Derek or I could say it any better than that. So uh, <laughs> what I want to do as a final note here is just replug Jules' new book, Nolympians, Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Mega Sports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond. Buy it from Fernwood's website. Avoid Amazon at all times if you can. Uh, but if you can support Fernwood directly, that's a terrific place to go. Um, and Jules, thanks again for coming on the show. This was a great pleasure for us. No, it was my great pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. 